Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host WFIU and WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Prior to 2018, the United States and the rest of the world could reliably send its waste to China for recycling. That changed when the Chinese government enacted its national sword policy in retaliation to President Trump's trade war. China announced it would no longer be taking the world's plastic and mixed paper waste, which it had done for the past 25 years. Now recycling programs across the country face an uncertain future as cash-strapped municipalities and cities must choose whether to invest more in recycling technologies and systems or forego recycling altogether. We're going to talk about that today with three guests. Uh, Tom McGlasson, Jr. is the executive director of the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District. Allison Mitchell is executive director of the Indiana Recycling Coalition. And Steve Sargent is director of recycling with Rumpke Waste and Recycling. If you want to join the program, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also reach us at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Tom and Allison, great to have you in the studio, and Steve, good to have you by phone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So uh, I want to give you all a chance to sort of react to what's going on, sort of the, the, the big macro picture, and I'm going to start with Allison from the Indiana Recycling Coalition. So how big of a problem is this? Global. <laughs> I mean, there's really no other way to say that. It's uh, Chinese policy has having a global ripple effect on countries, not just the U.S., but the U.K. and several across the world. So um, we're not alone in, in what we're trying to do to sort of re, um, re-understand and, and retool ourselves in the recycling world. Mm-hmm. And how about on the local scene, Tom? Uh, well, it certainly is something that we're watching. We haven't felt a great deal of impact um, by it at this point. I'm sure uh, most of your listeners are aware we did uh, a few months ago have to stop taking uh, our plastic bags and films. Um, we lost our vendor for that um, and haven't found uh, a new avenue um, to do anything with those yet. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that, you know, we're, we're seeing a little bit of a, a decrease in, in revenue that we get. We still do get some uh, revenue off of the recyclables that we collect to send to our vendor, but uh, you know we're our, our volume for the first quarter of this year versus last year um, are are basically the same, about a five ton difference, and we're about uh, four thousand dollars short uh, from the revenue that we had last year off that same tonnage. Okay, and uh, Steve Sargent, how about from uh, your perspective, being um, being someone with a company? Yeah, and from a private perspective, um, you know, this is my 30th year running a recycling division at Rumpke. So I've been through about six of these economic downturns in the market, but this one's unique. This one is from a government policy from China, and we have been so dependent upon uh, the export markets. You know, I think, as Allison mentioned, um, and I I try to explain to our customers that, you know, um, of all the fiber that was collected and processed in this country – one-third of that was shipped out of the country. It was exported. So of that one-third that was shipped out of the country, 70% of that went to China alone. So in 2018, the beginning of 18, when they slammed the door on especially mixed paper, it had a ripple effect to our industry. So I would tell you from a recycling industry perspective, we're having two issues. One is the movement. Can you sell what you bring in? Do you have a market for that? And number two is the price. Um, I think Tom mentioned that. The problem in the price today is we're at a nine-year low on the valuation of recyclables that we collect at the curb. So we're having to deal with that, and that's why we're having now to relook at the systems, look at contamination, and go back to our customers for some help. So what is happening to the stuff that's being recycled right now? If it's not going to China, where is it, where is it going? It's, well, go ahead. 
Well, in our case, for example, we run 10 plants, and um, we, the list of materials that we accept uh, from our systems, that, that material is going back into the marketplace. We, we're fortunate in the, in the Midwest that we have a lot of homes. We've told a lot of our customers, they've asked the same question, is this material going to a landfill? No, it's not. Um, and uniquely for Rumpke, we own our own glass plant. We have a glass plant in Dayton, Ohio, that we bring in about 6,000 tons a month of recycled glass. So we're fortunate we're unique in that aspect because we keep glass in our system. Um, but uh, it's but the whole industry is under a lot of pressure today. I, it, I must note uh, our producer has uh, notified me that our our open was not exactly correct, that the uh, the national sword policy wasn't enacted in retaliation to the trade war, but there were parts uh, like the tariff on aluminum came after the trade war, but but not this global policy. So, so I'm, is, is the same true for you? I mean, does stuff stay here in Indiana when it's being recycled? Yeah, I think the the good news about the, the China, the national sword out of China is that Indiana, typically, we weren't really sending our recyclable materials to China. We're landlocked. We don't have easy access to the ports. Now, those coastal cities were much more reliant physically on exporting those materials. But the portion of the policy that Indiana is unable to escape is the, is what it did to market values of the commodities. So what Tom mm-hmm. was talking about in terms of revenues being dropped and in, in Steve's case, the, you know, needing to um, pass on additional costs to customers, that is a result of the the influx, the oversupply of materials that's here domestically as a result of this that caused the value of all those materials to just drop out, especially mixed paper and fiber. Mm-hmm. As those prices drop, I mean, is there the worry, though, that it would be cheaper just to put it in a, in a landfill? Uh, in, in some places it is. And, you, you know, there's, there's news articles out there. I've talked with other uh, you know, communities you know, throughout the country, and, and particularly on the east and west coast, as Allison was, you know, was mentioning, where the bulk of their stuff did go overseas, and they can't do that anymore. Uh, and there's a, a number of communities uh, that have drastically reduced, if not eliminated, uh, their municipal recycling collection programs because they, uh, you know, they, either the cost to process the material is not financially feasible for them or they can't guarantee that material is being recycled. I feel like that was a thing that a lot of municipalities had to do early on, at least, was make it free and charge for trash in order to get people to recycle. So maybe some of that carrot might be going away. I don't know. In Bloomington... Does, is recycling that's just included in this new trash system now, right? Right. Yeah, I mean it is. Um, I, I believe it is built into their billing. That'd be a question for uh, Bloomington, but I believe it is built into their billing structure that's on the utility bills now. Um, our facilities, the solid waste district facilities, uh, are drop-off only facilities, and uh, there there is no charge for any recyclable materials that people bring to us. Okay. So, if you have any questions about uh, about this this particular policy or recycling in general, you can give us a call today at 812-855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348. News at indianapublicmedia.org is a way to reach us, as is uh, Twitter at Noon Edition. So I want to, again, take a step back and say how successful have municipal recycling programs and county recycling programs been. I think you can always find people on both sides of the fence, people who will say that the, you know, yes, we've gone heavily into recycling, but the effects are not as great as um, people would, as some would, lead, advocates would lead you to believe. So I guess, Allison, um, as a, the head of the Indiana Recycling Coalition, uh, what's your response to that? So it's been mixed. Mm-hmm. And I think that where you see differences in in success rates for recycling is where communities have made an investment in education. Bloomington is a great example of a community that has made investments in the education and access to recycling because you have curbside that's built into your um, solid waste fees. Trash and and recycling are kind of bundled together as a a service. And then you have the drop-off locations where you have people staffing those locations that you can have a, com- a conversation with about, you know, what is accepted, where, how do I put it in the right bins? And so you have a community conversation around recycling. And anytime you make investments in education, and it can come in a variety of, of formats, 
um, you're going to have better participation rates and you're going to have lower contamination rates in in your recycling bins themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to follow up on that too because the city has developed a single stream recycling program here. We ha- we did a program on recycling. It's been probably a year and a half, two years ago, and there was an international expert on here who was suggesting that he was applauding the city but saying there it should have been a dual stream recycling system. And I guess I, I'll start with Steve Sargent from Rumpke. I mean, what about this idea of sorting? Is it all right? Is it is it a the best system to have a single stream recycling system? Well, as I mentioned, uh, Bob, I've been in this market well over 30 years, actually. So I started at the curb. We started recycling and doing the sortation at the curb, moved to dual sort, which I think you're referring to, mm-hmm. where you kept the fiber away from your containers. We've moved through that phase, and now we're at the single stream phase. One thing that you've got to remember in the recycling process is that the transportation component is one of the most costly pieces we deal with. So we have to factor that in as we provide service to a city. Um, I have just I just spoke two days ago at a very large conference here in the state of Ohio and explained to a lot of elected officials, if you give us the materials that are on our acceptable list at a residue rate or a throwout rate of less than 5%, that single stream system works perfectly. It works very well for us. We, we screen our glass out first. It doesn't impact our, our, our quality of our paper. Rumpke um, has a very, a very large contract with Pratt Paper. We're very fortunate in the state of Indiana to have Pratt Paper Mill up in Valparaiso. They've just announced a new opening for a mill over in Ohio. We're going to be supplying that mill also. So my point being, if you, if you don't contaminate the material, our technology will allow us to separate that efficiently. Our problem is when we go in and service a small business or even a locale somewhere, maybe in a town or a city, they don't have the space for multiple containers. We have got to get that material picked up. So, you know, I think our challenge is what we tell folks is, you know, our challenge is not recycling doesn't have to pay for itself, but it's got to be a cost-effective alternative to waste disposal. And that's our challenge. And, and I think, again, we're, we're at a nine-year low. We're going through a watershed moment in our industry. We will come back from this. There are 17 new mill announcements happening now in the U.S. within the next two to three years. New paper mills are going to be consuming within the U.S. and North America. We've got to give them time to come online. It takes a time, but long term, we need to go through this. We have to get off of our dependence on the export market. All right. I'm curious with the single stream. I still just have so many questions about how it works and if, you know, you're seeing less material that's usable because of it here in Monroe County. Do you have any sense? Well, we, I mean, our facilities, are. we separate at the facility. We ask customers to bring it in. We have separate containers oh, for all the various, you know, co- commodities. So okay. it doesn't impact us. Can you speak about it for Indiana? Yeah. So for single stream is primarily the system used at the residential curbside and often in businesses as well. Um, and essentially it is... It, it is, it is a good system. As Steve mentioned, if people recycle properly and don't contaminate their recycling, the, the material recovery facilities all over the country, those are called MRFs for short, um, they are set up to handle our material quickly and efficiently and, and at low cost. Um, the, the problem is when we roll out those carts to residents for single stream and we say, Go for it, and good luck. And we don't give them proper education about what to put in, and more importantly, what not to put in. The greasy top to your pizza box. Tear that off. You can't put that in the recycling bin. Most people don't know that. And it's largely, we. a lot of times there's a, a lot of finger pointing at consumers, and I try to, to ease back on that a little bit. We can't blame all of this on the consumers. We have not, as an industry, done a great job of educating consumers on what to put in the bin and what not to put in the bin. And that's not one entity's responsibility. It's kind of everybody's responsibility. The other side to this is that product manufacturers have kind of gone crazy in terms of the the number of materials, the types of materials, the, the combination of materials, so composite materials. A great example of that is like a a juice pouch or an applesauce pouch where there's multiple layers of different materials combined. People want those things to be recyclable. They want most of the things that they purchase that have disposable components. They want those to be 
recyclable and they they aspirational recycle or wish cycle and because they really want it to be recycled so they throw it in the recycling bin and that's exactly the kind of contamination that Steve is talking about we need to do all of us not not just organizations like the Indiana Recycling Coalition or organizations like Tom at the local level in the Solid Waste Management District or Steve in the private sector, we all need to do our part to educate consumers better about what to throw in and what not to throw in the bin. So when you say contamination, is it if you throw in one of those juice boxes, is the whole bin contaminated? It depends. I mean, no, because that juice box can can typically get sorted out in the system, um, but to a certain threshold level. But it's when you throw in a dirty diaper or you throw in that greasy pizza box or something that has liquid in it that contaminates the fiber and the paper that's in there. It's That renders it unsalvageable in the recovery process. So it, the depend, contamination can take a lot of different um, it can look a lot different. A bowling ball in your recycling bin is also contamination. Oh my gosh! The things I mean, I mean, Tom could tell you, and I and I know Steve could also share some pretty amazing stories about things that they have found that people have thrown in the recycling bin. So it can really run the gamut from you know the last swig of milk in the milk jug that's still in there that should have been poured out. Empty, clean, and dry is the rule for what you know recyclables containers um, to. The bowling ball or, you know, plastic clothes hangers, things like that. People want those to be recyclable, but they're not. But they're not. Right. So we had a caller um, who didn't want to go on the air, but but she asked a question about whether this might be an opportunity to build a new industry reprocessing things like plastic um, here, I guess. What the question says. I mean, is there, are there, what opportunities might come out of this? And I, and I know I, I did read a story this morning from some source that was about the opportunity for more education. Of course, mm-hmm. that's one. But what other opportunities might come out of this kind of issue that we're having now? Tom? Well, I, mean, I think there's, there's a number of opportunities that could come out of it. I think, in, you know, and you're, we're seeing some of that. Steve mentioned earlier that, you know, there's 17 new mill, uh, you know, uh, announcements of new mills that are, you know, going to be uh, built or coming online in the near future. And, and that, that's one of the opportunities. And, and um, you know, how much of that, uh, you know, Allison mentioned earlier that in the Midwest, you know, we, we had a lot of that already in place because we weren't so reliant on shipping things overseas uh, because of the transportation cost. And, you know, Steve mentioned that. And, I mean, that's, uh, you know, one of our uh, you know, one of our biggest costs is transporting that material. I mean, we have all the material we collect. We have to pay to get it to where it goes, and that is one of our biggest costs on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, there, there's a number of opportunities that, that I think that are going to open up, uh, you know, for, for processing mills, for, you know, you know n- new technology, new repurposing, uh, you know, you know, entrepreneurs are everywhere. Who knows who's going to come up with what? And there's certainly going to be a number of opportunities to do things with this material um, that, some may already be out there, some we may not have thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Steve, anything to add? Oh, yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, think from the private perspective that uh, when you build a plant or you want to put a manufacturing facility together, you've got to first have the raw material. You've got to have a substantial quantity of that. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk a lot. I, I always I guess that probably 50 to 60% of the questions that we receive on recycling has to do with plastics. And plastics are so confusing to the folks. Uh, there are, are, you know, many different resin types. As I say, they are in the same family, but they don't play well together sometimes. Uh, you know, the high density, the polyethylene, the polyvinyl chloride, all those are very, very different. You can't just throw them in a vat, melt them, and make a new product. They act very differently. They have different melt indexes and all those type things. But you have to have – but those opportunities, I think, will be there. Now, for example, uh, I think glass is a very unique uh, issue – in, a, in the state of Indiana, we've got a, a you know, Pinoff Industries is a great example over in Shelbyville, Indiana, that makes fiberglass insulation. They're in need of more recycled glass. Where, where's our glass coming from now? A lot of it's coming from out of state. So where, where's the disconnect? And the glass is in the marketplace, and we have a demand for it on the other side. So where's the bridge? What do we need to do to keep this coming in? And there's a lot of answers to that, but I think you have to first have that long-term good, clean, raw materials flow for the industry to make that investment. Could you add, it sounds like glass is in, in some sort of demand now, so could you just talk about this the pricing issue again? And it sounds like maybe if people are recycling glass, they can get a decent price for it. 
Well, glass is uh, there is a very consistent market for glass. Um, it's been long term. Uh, glass is primarily in the recycling industry that we we work with and from our glass plant in Dayton. Um, we we sell into two markets. We sell into the fiberglass insulation market that they spin that and they make new fiberglass insulation, which is a great product. Long term benefit of fiberglass insulation. Think about that as, as the energy year after year. So it's a great product. The second product is in the in the manufacturing of bottles and containers in the food industry. For example, what we who we sell to. Uh, so we split both. Um, about two-thirds of our glass plant material goes to the fiberglass insulation industry because the material is broken up. It's much finer. And secondly, we sell uh, a third of our color into the container industry. So that's kind of the mix there. But gla- the problem with glass is it's a hard item to handle. You have to invest heavily in it. It, it doesn't. When you look at the valuation, it doesn't compare on the weight or value like an aluminum can. So uh, it does take an investment, and it does take a commitment. We built our glass plant in 2004 because we didn't have a long-term home. And our problem in the Midwest is glass continues to make up 15 to 18 percent by weight of what we pick up at the curb. And the recycling of glass is very cost-effective. If you talk to someone in the glass industry, the savings is huge when you utilize a new pellet. But there's a disconnect there. The, the valuation of pellet is not as high as our other products, and, and it does it does have an impact. It breaks and gets into the other material. Mm-hmm. So there's, that's valid. That's a valid concern to have. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, though, with all this confusion about plastics, I mean, I guess can can most of them still be recycled but just not together? Or are there a lot of them that just can't be recycled at all? So in your typical turnover the container and there's the chasing triangles with one through seven on it, Numbers one and two are your higher density plastics. Those have the highest value in the marketplace and the easiest to recycle. Three through seven have have their own challenges and are difficult to recycle, um, whether it's because of the ability to get it sorted to purely just its number um, or because of the value of that material um, and that it breaks down over time and doesn't kind of constantly come back. One and two are... um, have the highest value for that reason. They're they're very durable and they recycle well multiple times. Um, that's what your milk jugs are made of. It's your um, plastic soda bottles and plastic water bottles, things like that. So should you still put all of one through seven in your bin or no? Um, I always tell people, and I think Steve will applaud this response, always check with your local hauler to see what they're accepting. It's Frustratingly, it's not one answer for for everyone. There's no blanket answer. So if if you're serviced by Rumpke, um, get in touch with Rumpke and find out whether it's on their website or materials that they would um, provide to you as a subscriber, um, what materials they want you to put in the bin and which ones they don't want you to, to put in. But at, for example, at my home, I five through seven, I don't recycle. And it's difficult to tell my spouse and my family members that turn it over if it's got a five or six or seven put it in the trash bin it's not a very popular thing to say <laughs> maybe, right. maybe i can maybe i can jump in there because yeah, sure. I, I, I applaud that i think what we are moving to to get away from the one through seven uh you know the the the, the, the note at the bottom of, of, of the symbol what we are trying to move to is the web model we want a small mouth large body a bottle or jar that we can use, and we so we're trying to go more on the shape of the container. Which Allison's correct; it's those are generally ones and twos. Um, the food packaging is a real challenge today. There are homes for food packaging. We can't tell people those are not recyclable, but there's not sustained long-term markets, and they do contaminate our other materials. So our messaging recently has moved to: What does a bottle look like? If it's got a screw-on lid, small mouth, large body, we want those. We'll take all that you can send us of that material. So we're trying to simplify that message if we can. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. We're talking about recycling. If you have any questions for us, uh, please give us a call, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. News at IndianaPublicMedia.org is our web address and also at Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we are talking today about recycling. We have three guests with us on Noon Edition. Tom McGlasson, Jr. is the executive director of the Monero County Solid Waste Management District. Allison Mitchell is executive director of the Indiana Recycling Coalition. And Steve Sargent is director of recycling with Rumpke Waste and Recycling. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the local calling area, news at indianapublicmedia.org is a way to send us a question. And also you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have a couple of callers, but first I'm going to go to someone who called in a question. What to do with old plastic storage containers? Are those recyclable? Who wants to take that, Allison? Uh, my guess is typically not, um, and 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 this allows me the opportunity to sort of throw in the very popular phrase in our industry right now: "When in doubt, throw it out." So unless you flip that plastic storage container over and you see a one or a two, um, it's probably not going to be recyclable. And and also just because of the shape and size of it. Uh, would make it a very difficult thing to recycle in your curbside. So that would be a situation where you might take it to Tom at one of his drop-off locations and say, "Tell me what to do with this." Tom, what would what would you tell him? Uh, well, as, as Allison mentioned, we you know we we get that question uh, quite a bit from people, and you know if it has the chasing arrow symbol on it with the number, you know we'll take it. Uh, size is generally not an issue for us. We you know everything goes into an open top hopper and gets compact in a box, so we can take fairly large items, but. Without that symbol, we, we don't want it because we, we don't know what's going to happen to it when it goes leaves our facility. Mm-hmm. Steve? Well, I, I use an example of a five-gallon drywall bucket. Great example, oh, high-density yeah. bucket. It's a very, that can be recycled, but that doesn't belong in our residential program because, as, as Allison mentioned, that has a really negative impact on our processing equipment as we design that system. So there are, I tell people most of the time, there's probably homes for almost every plastic item that we can get, but it has to, it does not always come to a recycling plant. It may be a direct, uh, you know, shipment to a, a consumer, maybe from a commercial perspective. So, um, great. So I think we just stick with our list. I think Allison hit it hard for us. Go to our website, look what's on the list. We can run that material all day long. Okay, Tom. Uh, and a, a quick follow up on that. That you know, one thing I d- did didn't mention that you know we also at all of our facilities um, have a reuse component. Uh, you know, so so those types of containers that if 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 they're not recyclable or there's a question about whether or not they're recyclable, if they're still in good condition and usable, uh, we may still take them through our reuse facilities and offer them up to other people that may have a need for that. Okay, we're going to go to the phones. We've got a couple of phone callers. Sarah's first. Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Are you there? Yes, I am. Yeah, go ahead. My my question is, you're, I came in in the middle of the program wanting very much to hear just the kind of thing you're telling us. Well, we lost Sarah. But she liked to hear the things that we're telling her. So <laughs> I think she probably has questions about different kinds of materials. And she can call back, and we can get to those. Um, but first, we're going to go to our other phone caller, and that's Mike. Mike? Hey, hey Mike. Uh, yeah, I've got a question. Uh, you were talking about the plastic bottles with small caps, things like that being the most durable. My question is, how about the caps? Uh, I've looked at caps real carefully, and I don't think I've ever found a cap that has a recycling symbol on it. Allison, you're nodding your head. 
Yeah, and I know Steve would take this question as well. Uh, the question is always, do you screw the cap on and throw it in with you? And the answer is yes. Um, it might be a different type of plastic than the actual bottle, but it is likely a one or a two. Um, so, yes, through that cap on to the container, if it's like one that Steve mentioned where it's got a neck and a smaller um, mouth on it, and throw that in your residential curbside bin. Wow. Mike, I'm glad you asked that question because I always take those caps off and throw them away. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, then my uh, second question is, why don't we do something about the overabundance of styrofoam in our society? I mean, I don't think that's the good stuff to recycle. You know, most of it isn't even recyclable. All right. Who wants to handle that? Tom, what, what can we do about that? Uh, well, I mean, we, we do accept um, some, some styrofoam. Our vendor will take uh, some styrofoam that, that does have the chasing arrow symbol on it, um, and I believe it's a number five. Uh, but um, so, so that's stuff that we can take. But, you know, in answer to the, to the real question, you know, the, unfortunately, that's probably not something that any of us are in a position to answer. That's something you have to go back to the packagers and manufacturers, and they need to find a different way to package these materials. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think that's a question, though. Yeah, is when you're looking at some of the, even some of the plastics you were talking about, are you all involved with conversations about maybe we, what effect would it have if we switched to this kind of plastic or got away from some of these recyclables maybe, or I'm sorry, styrofoam and did something cardboard or something? Yeah, at the Indiana Recycling Coalition, that is definitely um, part of what we do as an organization. Um, our, our name is a little bit of a misnomer in that it, it says that we're focused on recycling, and we certainly are, um, but we don't only focus, focus on recycling. So we look back up the supply chain and try to have conversations with manufacturers about the, the materials that they're putting out into the public and making sure that they are considering the impact that that's going to have. And you've, you've already seen this in the national and, and actually in global media media, where different companies, product companies, are rethinking their packaging and their materials, because when you look at the Pacific Ocean gyre and you see green straws, people can pretty quickly trace back where that green drinking straw came from, and so that is becomes a liability to the company that produced that. Mm-hmm. The whole straw movement is something I know we've, we've done some reporting on, but a lot of places going to paper. Yeah, and I also want to ask about the the single-use plastic bags because, you know, in Bloomington, we had a movement to ban those. Um, What's the the latest thinking on those? Are they recyclable in any way? What's what's the deal? Uh, My understanding is there is a market for them. Uh, You know, our our, our vendor um, lost their their mill that that they were sending them to. you know, from and I'm Allison and Steve may have more information on this. You know, what was explained to me is that um, you know the the materials that we were collecting, and I think this comes back a little bit to the wishful cycling that Allison was referencing earlier. Uh, you know, we had black trash bags, frozen food packaging, Ziploc bags with peanut butter or mayonnaise, and they don't want that. Uh, you know, they they want very light colored or cleared plastic bags, plastic film without food residue in them. And um, and that's just not you know not what uh, our our program had evolved into, and that was a big part of our problem. Mm-hmm. We got a question before somebody wondering if they drop those plastic bags off at those bins they have in Kroger and Fresh Time, all the grocery stores, if they actually do get recycled, or do those just go straight to the trash? Was the question? Well, no, I, yeah, I can address that. Those those do get recycled. They don't come in through our process, and we actually promote that. We those the retail stores can take that material in. We're we're very much aware of where that material goes. Um, but so that that's an avenue. And we were, I mean, uh, we were actually uh, called from SC uh, or SK Johnson. You know, talking to SC Johnson about the Ziploc bag, a very recyclable product, but it doesn't work within our system because what it does and it flattens out like paper and can end up at a print paper mill. So there's many different products that have homes for those, and that's a great example of single-use bags. Um, but they go through a different avenue. And that's what I'm saying. I think we've got to relook at this whole system that, we're, that we've been promoting. We've really been on a race now to zero waste, and we keep thinking that all this material can go into the recycling bin, and it really doesn't belong there. We've got to kind of step back, take a breath, rethink what we're doing, because we're somewhat contaminating something we've already had going that's been moving in the right direction. So 
good time for us to kind of reassess, and I think that was mentioned by Allison or Tom, that we've got to kind of reassess where we're at today and what can these systems do. All right. We're starting to get a lot of phone calls, so we're going to go first. Uh, Sarah's back. Let's go, Sarah. Sarah? Hi. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they... The question that I have is is kind of a plea. Uh, we're getting lots of good information in this program, and I came in in the middle of wanting to have been there from the beginning. Uh, but as things keep changing, is there a way for the for the uh, recycling center to keep feeding the information and the changes and the stuff that we're doing wrong to us so that we can get it better? Uh, is there, for instance? We get it. We get a bill every month from from city utilities. Um, could could updated information from time to time be included in that bill? Well, I think that's a good question for uh, city employees. Tom, do you have any insights in that? Uh, well, yeah, we have the you know the city would be the ones to talk to about getting information put in there. You know, um, along those same lines, and we are different from the city and we do handle things a little differently but we you know we're on facebook we're on twitter we have a website and we are constantly you know putting information out there when circumstances or processes change for us that uh you know change materials that we're taking or the way that we're you know handling things so you know you you can pay attention to our website and social media outlets for uh, updated Um, information as well i i guess i don't quite know how to do that how do i get to you uh, our website is uh, gogreendistrict.com, uh, and uh, on Facebook, we're uh, The District, uh, Monroe County Solid Waste, uh, and uh, Twitter is The District as well. And so this, you would have information on what we could put in our city recycling? Uh, no, that, uh, we're, we're separate from the city. Uh, i Asking the right person. Is there nobody there no, that, that's the city. We did invite the city today, but unfortunately, the person from the city who handles this was out of town, so couldn't come oh, on. But I imagine on the city's website, they probably yeah, have a I'm list sure of do. things. Yeah. yeah, you check the city's website, and you know, or the number for the city sanitation department is listed sure. on there. Um, sure. I talk with them regularly; they're very helpful. Mm-hmm. All right, Sarah. And, and, thank you, thank you, you for calling back. Allison? And Sarah, while you're looking online for some information about how and what to recycle, I would encourage you to also go to the Indiana Recycling Coalition's website. It's indianarecycling.org. And we are, um, in 2019, we're going to be launching a new education program that we'll be delivering through to um, residents of the entire state for free through partners like Tom and his counterparts and other counties of the state, and it's called the Master Recycler Program. It is mirrored off of, or I should say inspired by, a program that was developed in Portland, Oregon. Um, Ours is an online version. Um, You'll get education in five to 15-minute topic modules that'll be fun and interactive, and you'll have the opportunity to um, receive kind of a a designation as a Master Recycler if you go through that program. Great. Wow. Uh, one, one completely different question. I saw on Facebook someplace where they are taking plastic bags and turning them into fuel. Well, as a, as a market, and I wonder whether anybody here knows anything about that. Allison's nodding. Yeah, there's a yep. tremendous amount of technology and innovation in this space right now because of the plastic pollution problem that we have and the the variety of plastics that are out there in the world. Um, so it there are. Um, plastic is actually a petroleum product. That's where it derives from. So there is a lot of technology in different ways to um, kind of break it down and, and get it back to its kind of original components. And one of those is to utilize it as a, as a clean fuel. Steve, do you want to add? Well, yeah. I, I, the, we actually have an agreement now with a company. Actually, they have a location in Gary, Indiana, and also in Medina, Ohio, called Sexor mm-hmm. Technologies. And they do a engineered fuel product. So that's a, it's a high BTU fuel product that they make uh, out of the plastic waste that can be used. That, that's qualifying for that. So as Allison said, there's a lot of activity going on now in that space. So we have to kind of watch that develop. But there's some great opportunities, I think, in the future for that. So maybe some of those Kroger bags yeah. Yeah. there go in that direction. Yep. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Susan is next on the line. Susan? Hi, how are you? Good. I uh, wanted to just mention, um, and I may have missed it if it was early on, the, the concepts we had uh, back in the 1970s of pre-cycling and reuse. I know that's not the 
focus of today, but I'm the person that goes out to eat, carries with me a repurposed uh, food container that I got as a food container that's been used now for about three years, uh, and I just carry that with me, and I refuse styrofoam for carry-out and um, uh, for anything left over. I just reuse the same plastics. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, like, with the juice boxes, we can pre-cycle those as well by not buying them and buying in bulk and then putting juices into smaller containers that can be consumed uh, in a reusable container. And those two concepts are basic to helping with the issues. All right. Susan? That's so true, Susan. And what you're saying is is literally music to my ears. Um, we're like I said, we're focused on more than recycling, and the best material is the material you don't ever use. And one thing we are seeing a lot of more is the power. Consumers are starting to understand the power that they have in the world, and that they vote with their dollar. And every time Susan doesn't accept a styrofoam container, she's sending a message to the the businesses that she's patronizing that she doesn't want that material. And so. You can do that in a couple of ways. You can say to the people, literally start a conversation. Um, You can just refuse it by not buying it. And then also, um, I think it's a powerful tool, is like when Susan brings her reusable takeout container or she brings her um, reusable flatware or her her stainless steel straw someplace or her her grocery bag. There's There's a ton of examples where you can bring your own reusable material and just use that in a public setting. And that sends a message to the people in your community that that's a value that you hold, and, and the retailers see that too. So so kudos to you, Susan, for your um, habits and practices in that space. Well, I appreciate that. I also carry my own straws and refuse those when I get drinks, and I make and uh, take my own uh, grocery bags and shopping bags. Awesome. Uh, to, out, of, out of repurposed bird seed bags. Nice. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Susan. Great tips. Good luck. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And we have Michael next. Michael? Hey, good afternoon. Hello? Uh, Bob, Bob, hello? Yes, go ahead. Oh, hi. So, Bob, I'm just following up on your comment about the conversation in Bloomington about the plastic bag ban. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of an article that Planet Money, on Planet Money from April 9th, uh, of a University of Sydney economist looking at those regulations. And I, on the face of it, was very um, in favor of a plastic bag ban. Her findings are suggesting that there may be unintended consequences uh, related to the secondary uses that people have for plastic bags that go away when they don't have access to them. And so then they, so garbage bag sales go up. So we're still then using an equipment, possibly an equivalent amount of material but it's hidden from us there. The other point that they are making is that plastic bags by quantity of material used and the energy that goes into making them is still far less than the cost of, than the equivalent cost of making a canvas bag or a reusable bag and the amount of time it would take to make up for the material that goes into a canvas bag is much longer than a plastic bag. So those are some interesting findings in that Planet Money article that complicate the conversation about uh, policy implementation or changing policies. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Nothing, nothing is easy. Nothing is simple. No. <laughs> right? No, thanks. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Panelists, comments on... On that, Tom. Uh, well, I, I just um, you know the unintended consequences is you know something that, that creeps up in a lot of different things when we try to make changes and uh, uh, you know and, and, and it, it, you're right. I'm not familiar with the article that he was referencing, but uh, you know for, for me, it, it, going back to the previous caller, that you know you you look there's a number of things that we can all do as individuals. Um, you know it goes back to the three R's: reduce, reuse, recycle, and they're in that order for a reason. You know, if if we reduce what we we consume, we're reducing the waste that we generate. Then we have less need for those plastic trash bags, less need for those plastic grocery bags, and you know, and that's you know, if if everybody did a little bit toward that end, that would, you know, the the cumulative effect of that would be a substantial impact on on the waste streams that's generated. All right, well, thank you, Michael. We appreciate the call. All right, our phone numbers again for the last uh, six or seven minutes of the program, 812-855-0811 or one eight seven seven 
285-9348, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I've read a little bit about the Amazon effect. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that, just this extreme amount of cardboard. And if you all have noticed an, an impact of more cardboard as a result of so many people buying everything from mattresses to food to diapers from Amazon. Um, you know, our, we, we, we track our tonnages on the various commodities, and we actually have, have not seen that substantial of an impact uh, on the cardboard. But uh, I'm familiar with the Amazon effect and, and have read that. And, uh, you know, it, it certainly um, it has to be having an impact somewhere. Uh, you know, the, for, for me, the flip side of it is that, uh, you know, cardboard is one of those materials, commodities that there, there, there has been a, a strong, steady market for. Um, you know, the market's been impacted somewhat, but there's still a demand for that material out there um, from the mills. Steve, what are you seeing? Yeah, we, uh, it's interesting. The American Forest and Paper Association put out data, and we've looked at that. And from 2017 into 2018, uh, the country or the North American Division had recycled 300,000 less tons. And if you look at the recovery rate of corrugated, it's actually peaked in 16 and 17, and now it's moved down below 90%. Now, the data that they're quoting is that 25, only 25% of the corrugated packaging that's going to the household is making it back into the recycling stream. Well, that's interesting, and that's kind of challenging. I think that one of the things we look at on the collection side from our hauling division is when these large boxes come to a household, like let's just use an example of a television box something that contained that that product, how does that unit, how does that product get back into that recycling bin? Well, it's got to be cut up. It's got to be broken down. And in some cases, that's not happening. So we're, our industry is watching that very, very closely. Now, Amazon's actually just very recently made some changes, it seems to be, to go back to some more plastic packaging because of the box cost and all those things that are associated with that. So our industry is kind of taking a step back to say, well, where's this going to go? And as a collector, we have to be very cognizant of our customers who said, we've got this large box. We can't get it back into our recycling container. So those are things we're really watching very closely now. Mm-hmm. Did you want to add, Allison? No, I mean, what they've said is is very accurate. And um, the what the Amazon effect is doing, too, they're using all those cardboard boxes. They are increasing the demand for corrugated. And uh, we didn't really have the capacity here in this country to produce it locally uh, because we were shipping so much of it over to China. So Steve had mentioned 17 new paper mills coming online, and um, and he mentioned Pratt. Pratt is an example of one that makes corrugated in, in Indiana, and they don't cut down a single tree. It's 100% recycled material that go into their products. So um, people should really pay attention to trying to get their cardboard put into the recycling curbside bin whenever they can and, and flatten it, break it down, make it make it workable for the hauler and the MRF to process that. And if it's too large, then do something like take it to a drop-off location that um, that Monroe County manages because that those materials are, it's a great closed-loop story because we can do that closing of the loop within the state of Indiana. We just have a few minutes to go, and I want to ask, uh, Tom, last time I went to your facility, I was taking paint out there, mm-hmm. hazardous waste, uh, you know, some hazardous waste I wanted to get rid of. And I, I learned some stuff about some of it that can actually go in the trash if it's if it's dried out. Uh, latex paint, yeah. Latex paint, uh, if it's um, – you let it dry out, mix it with sawdust, kitty litter, soil. Mm-hmm. You know, once you have it as a solid substance, it can go out with your regular trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other in, – in kind of in correlation with that, you know, the other issue that we have with, with the paint cans, the paint cans are not recyclable. I mean, the dried paint that gets up on the sides of those, uh, that's, the recyclers don't want that, the metal facilities don't want that, and that's not something that we can get recycled. Mm-hmm. What about batteries? What, have, what, what should people do with batteries? We take batteries at all of our facilities. They all go up to a, um, a facility in Indianapolis, um, and they break them apart and recoup all the recycled materials out of them that they can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do not put them in your curbside recycling bin, however. Okay. Or your trash. No, they, they do need to be separate from recyclables. They are a, a different commodity and handled by different facilities in a completely different manner. Okay. Allison, we only have a couple minutes, but I have an 8-year-old who 
So when he knew we were doing this show, said you've got to ask them about junk mail because he is learning about this in his in his class and about how many times it will stretch around the planet. So what can you do to not get so much junk mail? There are websites that you can visit, and um, you can also do the website where you try to kind of get a, a wide swath all at once, or you can just call contact the companies um, by looking at the back of the and where the mailing label contact them and tell you to add them to your do not mail list. Um, but that's a very great thing. Everybody hates it, right? It's annoying and it it um, it gets in the way and it just fills up your recycling bin. So do you know you the can, statistics on that? This, I can't remember what he was telling me about something about how many times it was stretched around the planet. Yeah, not, not off the top of my head. But the other thing crazy. is to let the companies know that are sending it that, especially like the catalogs that they just automatically send you, that that, that doesn't align with your values. And if they want your business, they need to be in alignment with your values. So send me an email mm-hmm. or, um, you know, Give me a link to your website, but don't don't continue to send me a catalog every other week just because I bought a pair of socks from you one time. <laughs> Steve, I'm going to give you the last word. So we've got about 30 seconds to go. Any last sure. points that you want to make for uh, our listeners out there? Well, I think from a, uh, there's been a lot of national attention given to this China national sword issue, and it's, it's very valid. It's happening to us now. But we have to go through this. So hang hang with us. Uh, we may need some help as we work through this, but we're going to be much stronger on the other end of this as we come out and depend on mills that are located within North America. And that's where we need to go with this. All right. Thank you to Steve Sargent, Director of Recycling with Rumpke Waste and Recycling. Also, Allison Mitchell and Tom McGlasson, Jr., who have been here in the studio with us. For uh, producer Patrick McGurr and producer Benta Boutier, as well as engineer, engineer Mike Pashkash and co-host Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device.